We were definitely significantly ahead of our time with Shazam. Um, so, you know, keep in mind, so we're, we came up with this, you know, the idea was the summer of night, or just after the summer of 1999 is when I came up with the idea. Um, and then the real breakthrough idea for Shazam was, uh, was not what's that song, because actually that's pretty obvious. In fact, there were several companies already trying to do that, multiple companies. Um, but they were all, the breakthrough is how we were going to go about it. Hi, and welcome to the Sliced Podcast, where we share startup stories from founders, investors, and CEOs from across the globe. A little bit about our platform, Startup Blog Post, is that we're a community where aspiring entrepreneurs and venture capital ecosystem stakeholders can share meaningful insights, engage with colleagues and peers, and stay informed. Hi, and welcome back to the Sliced Podcast. I'm Emily Ahrens, and I'm joined by my co-host, Michael Gallagher, and today we have a special episode with Chris Barton. He's a motivational speaker and founder of Shazam and Guard. For those of you not in the know, Shazam is one of the most downloaded apps in history and set a precedent for mobile apps today. Chris is also the founder of Guard, an AI technology to prevent drowning. Hi, Chris. Thank you so much for joining us today. We are ecstatic. Thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> we are so excited to just learn more about you and your journey and your experience as an entrepreneur. So we have some fun questions for you and we can kind of just jump in. Okay. I'm, I'm ready when you are. Okay. So the first question is easy. Just tell me a little bit about your background. So where did you come from? <laughs> How did you get started? And kind of walk us through that early career education bit. Okay. Uh, yeah. So most of my childhood, um, I grew up in San Diego, um, surfing every day. And nice. uh, yeah, that was that was a good that was a good life in in high school years. Um, and then um, and then uh, I embarked on my uh, venture into the real world um, when I went to UC Berkeley for college. So I went up to Northern California, um, and uh, and uh, during that time, I, I kind of uh, like many people sort of changed my mind a lot of times on my major. I entered. Yeah. Uh, as a civil engineering major, um, and then discovered that I was not that excited about that. Then I switched to economics and computer science double major, um, and I realized uh, that uh, I was fascinated by the, the the combination of business and technology. Um, but I also realized that it would be uh, that computer science was a very very hard major at mm -hmm. Berkeley, um, and took a lot of time. And I thought, wow, I can't keep up with these people that are going to program until five in the morning. Um, and um, so I did, uh, I did end up taking quite a few computer science classes. But in the end, I graduated um, with an economics major and a business minor. Um, and, I, and I kind of started um, with a sort of a traditional career, shall we say. I, I did a quick master's degree in England at Cambridge. Um, and then I entered into the world of management consulting. Okay. Uh, so uh, that was my first job. And I ended up um, working for two different companies for a total of, gosh, I guess around five or six years um, doing management consulting. Um, and then, uh, and then I headed back to do an MBA and it was actually during my MBA at, at Berkeley that, uh, that I suddenly thought, wow, what I really want to do is be an entrepreneur and start a company. Um, and I actually didn't realize that before going back to do the MBA, I realized it while I was at the MBA. Um, there's something very empowering about being surrounded by, um, a couple hundred other students from all different backgrounds, all looking to kind of reposition their careers and do different things. And um, so that, that, that's when I embarked on the idea of starting a company, going through the brainstorming of what it would be and, uh, and, and embarking on Shazam. So was it the peers that you were surrounded by that kind of motivated you to want to become an entrepreneur? Or was there a class or was there a certain moment? Or did you just kind of gradually come to that realization that entrepreneurship was exciting for you? Yeah, it was like, a, it was, I would say it was a buildup of things. I mean, I would say to, to some extent, it was already in my DNA. I'd already, uh, you know, from, from being, from whenever I was, a from when I was a kid, I would, you know, do all the little projects, you know, little lemonade stands and garage sales and haunted houses. And I was always up for little projects um, and little, including little entrepreneurial projects. Um, so I think that was in my DNA and it was, um, I think it was kind of a realization that 
wow, you can really start your own company. I mean, like you can actually do it. And actually there was a, there was a sort of pivotal moment where um, I was in the first couple weeks of the, of my first year in the MBA and I was in the computer lab and um, there was, a, I sat next to a guy who was, he was actually one year ahead of me. So he was in his second year of the MBA program. Uh, and I said, Oh, what are you working on? And he said, Oh, I'm, I'm starting a company. And I thought, Oh, wow. Uh, and then I said, well, um, uh, and by the way, he did start a company and actually went public. I mean, it was, oh, it, wow. it was a huge thing. It was, a, um, it, I think it, it didn't become famous after that, but it was a real estate technology company. And um, I, I said to him, well, what did you do before business school? And he said, I, I was an Air Force pilot. Um, and and wow. I remember thinking, gosh, you know, I mean, you know, the, there's, if, if an Air Force pilot can, can go to do an MBA and start a company, I have no excuses, you know, I mean, because right. like clearly not a lot of applicable things other than being amazing and, and uh, driven in, in um, as an Air Force pilot. So, but it was very inspiring for me. And so I thought it was, it made me feel like, okay, I'm going to do this. I, I can do this as well. Yeah. So when you were having those realizations, you thought, okay, entrepreneurship is for me. I'm going to do this. Did you already have the idea of Shazam like banked in your brain and you're like, okay, I'm going to ex execute on this. Or did you just think, okay, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. What should I do? Yeah, I was, it was that. It, yeah. I didn't have the idea for Shazam. I, it was more that I, I had come to the conclusion I want to be an entrepreneur. Right. Um, and, and, uh, and that was the beginning of my first year. And then um, it was really, uh, it was really the, the following, because you have a two-year, it's a two-year MBA with a summer in between. Um, and it was, um, it was really that summer in between that I really embarked on kind of brainstorming what the business would be. Mm -hmm. um, I, I did a summer, I went out to London and did my summer internship in London at, at Microsoft. Um, and, uh, and I had a friend that I would hang out with a lot. I had known him from San Francisco, but he lived in London. And um, we both thought it would be great to start a company. He, he became one of my co-founders of Shazam. Um, and we would just go, and in London, we would just go and meet at cafes and, and do brainstorming days, um, just kind of thinking of different business ideas, um, you know, literally just writing them down and then kind of shooting them down um, with each other and so on. Um, so we did go through all those months of brainstorming, um, thinking that we'd like to start a company. Um, but it wasn't actually during any of those brainstorming sessions that I came up with the idea for Shazam. It was, um, it was sort of just in my own time. I, I, I did find I was sort of brainstorming all the time when I was jogging, relaxing, yeah. constantly thinking of stuff. Was there any idea that was close to activating I was activating just going to ask, like, <laughs> yeah, like, which ones didn't were, make the cut? <laughs> but were in the top three that you considered or oh, yeah. any okay, that stood well, out? There's two that... Um, there's two that I was considering and probably went to a very, to a very short period of time thinking, oh, wow, maybe I'll, this is what we'll do. Um, one of them was, uh, you have to keep in mind when this was, right? This is, this is like 1999, uh, the summer of 1999. So um, sort of the, the end of the dot-com bubble. Um, and um, so one was just, I thought, I, like many people, wore contact lenses. I thought, gosh, they're so expensive. And you're, you can't believe you pay like... $15 for a bottle of salt water, you know? And, um, and, uh, and so I was like, someone needs to just sell this stuff on the internet. And, uh, and that hadn't been done at the time. Um, and, uh, in fact, now there's some big businesses that are related to that eight, one, 800 contacts. Yeah. And, um, and it probably would have been a, a, a very lucrative business to start. Um, but I did, it, was, it did kind of, uh, bring a learning for me, which was that I wasn't that excited about it. And I kind of thought you really need to be excited about something to wake up every day and just keep plowing away at it. Um, and I, I just couldn't get super excited about, okay, I'm going to sell contact lenses on the internet um, for me. Mm -hmm. uh, so didn't pursue that one. Although, as I said, I think it would have been a great business if it had been done well. Um, and then uh, the second um, the second one was my friends would make fun of me so, because this is the craziest thing. Um, but it was uh, I, I, basically the concept was I thought, well, movies have stars. And, and the stars are so so important that people will like literally, like a movie budget will be like a hundred million dollars and 30 million of it just goes to like the, the star, you know, because it's so important to draw the crowds. And I thought, well, websites don't have stars. You know, what, what if websites had stars? Um, and so the, the close equivalent that I came up with was that wouldn't it be neat if you went to, you know, amazon.com or, you know, any, any website basically. And then while you were on there, if there was a famous person also on there, you know, whatever, some, 
Madonna or something. It was a popular singer at the time. Um, then it would say Madonna's also on Amazon.com right now, and, and that was my idea. It was it was something that was sort of just bring that kind of to life, that kind of concept that wow, the stars are there as well. Um, of course, it required um, embedding tracking software into the computers of uh, famous people, which is <laughs> <laughs> that's what you were really after the data from. <laughs> I mean, it's similar to like endorsement, like you know, Madonna's yeah. endorsed this site. I and see where you were proof. going with it. Yeah, yeah. There's now like yeah. social proof sites too that say like. X amount of people have downloaded this product yeah. or, um, mm-hmm. so yeah, I think you were on the right track there and it seems like you have a good <laughs> brainstorming capacity. So you mentioned that it's important for you to be excited about it. Um, which we have found to be very true for entrepreneurs to stick through some of those low points. And it seems like Shazam did not have an easy road to get going. Um, cause it seemed like you launched a little bit before the market was ready for something like that. So can you talk about how you kept that excitement and what that difficult road was to start to get traction with Shazam? Yeah, so uh, we were definitely significantly ahead of our time with Shazam. Um, so, you know, keep in mind, so we're, we came up with this, you know, the idea was the summer of night or just after the summer of 1999 is when I came up with the idea. Um, and then the real breakthrough idea for Shazam was uh, was not what's that song, because actually that's pretty obvious. In fact, there were several companies already trying to do that, multiple companies. Um, but they were all, the breakthrough was how we were going to go about it. Because all these companies were doing what was technically feasible, which was to monitor radio stations. So they had all used different approaches to monitoring hundreds or thousands of radio stations. And then, and then they had all provided services where using, mostly using your phone, but in some cases, some gadgets, you could say, this is the radio station I'm listening to, and it would tell you what song you're hearing. Um, and so, as I said, that, you know, that's technically, the reason that's technically feasible is because Radio Play has, first of all, has a limited number of songs. So only about 100,000 songs get played on the radio versus you know, the catalog of Spotify would be like 50 million songs. Um, the secondly, when you're playing songs on the radio, it's a nice clean signal. So you can monitor, you know, there were, there were already companies that could monitor these signals of radio stations and, and find out what was playing. Um, so from a pattern recognition standpoint, that's a relatively easy problem. Um, when, you, when you introduce noise and scale into pattern recognition, then it becomes impossible in most cases um, or very, very difficult. Um, and that was the breakthrough idea of Shazam is what if we didn't monitor radio stations, but we literally just identified the music from the sound in the air coming to your microphone of your phone um, and then pattern matched it against a vast database of all music. Um, and regardless of the fact that there might be you know various ambient noises um, in the background. Um, so that was the idea. Um, and, um, and that's what we embarked on. So, and I don't know if everyone listening knows this, but I think at the beginning it was something where you would have to dial in with like a Nokia phone or whatever, and you would get a text with what the song was. Can you talk about like the evolution of Shazam a bit? Yeah. And I realized I didn't actually answer your first question, the last question well, uh, or get to the actual answer, um, which was, uh, which was that you know you said you mentioned about struggling and, and so when we when we launched that was the 2002 so about two years after starting the company um, but the reality is there was as you mentioned there were no iPhone or App Store or anything like the iPhone launched in 2007 the App Store launched in 2008 wow. so we launched six, six years before the App Store that's amazing though and during those six years we barely had any users barely had any usage barely had any revenue I mean we we struggled uh, we almost went bankrupt many times. Um, we had down rounds, we had layoffs, you know, it, it was really, really tough times. Six years of surviving, um, wow. barely surviving and, and, and really waiting for the industry to catch up with our vision because ultimately all these things were, you would read about them in industry reports. Phones are going to get really advanced and they're going to have color screens and networks are going to go to 3G because you know, this is even pre-3G um, and, um, and, and so on. All these things were coming, but it also so much longer than people anticipated and of course no one anticipated the iphone itself um but it turned out that it wasn't until the iphone and then sub- subsequently android um that you ha- where you had apps and really rich experiences that um and the dis- that the, the, everything came together the discovery the usability and so on that enabled shazam to just hit its hockey stick of growth so so we barely survived for six years um and then finally we hit sort of our 
uh, heyday of uh, growth in, in 2008 eight onwards. Um, but yes, when we first launched our service, um, you know, it was on those old phones. And then in a way, that was actually part of the inspiration of when I came up with the idea for Shazam, because at that time, remember phones, you basically just made phone calls. You would uh, be able to play like a ringtone on your phone, download a ringtone, and then you could send text messages to other users. Um, and uh, that was basically all you could do on a phone. Uh, and, and I kind of thought, well, there's got, there's got to be other things that people are going to want to do on phones. You know, everyone's carrying phones around. What, you know, what, can, we, what can we build? And so the neat thing about the Shazam concept um, was that it was going to be something that would work on everyone's phone because all we needed was the microphone, which every phone has because you speak on it. Um, we needed uh, a bit, the, uh, an IVR system so they could call in where we'd record the sound. And we needed a return path for the information, which was the SMS text message. Um, that, where we'd send back the name of the song. And so we had, basically all mobile phones had the basic uh, capabilities that we needed to launch Shazam. And when Shazam launched, that's the way it worked, was you would pull out your phone, any mobile phone, any mobile phone, didn't have to have any special capabilities, apps or anything. Um, you dial the phone number and we arranged to have a four digit phone number on all the mobile operators in our first market, which was the United Kingdom. Um, so you dial the four digit phone number, it made a voice call. Um, our automated system answered the call and uh, it said, hold your phone to the music. And uh, we would record 15 seconds of sound. Um, and then we would just terminate the phone call automatically and send a text message to the user's phone with the name of the song. Um, and then if, if we got the song, in some cases we didn't couldn't figure out the song, obviously, but um, if we got the song right, then, um, then we, they would be charged using premium SMS. So it was a, a fee each time mm. you used it. Um, that's so crazy. I'm like trying just like hearing you say that and hear that story. Like I'm trying my best to remember myself using those phones. It feels like such a distant memory now, yeah. you know, with the technology we have now. But I definitely remember just like purchasing those little cards at Walgreens where you got like 15 more minutes and like trying to make your texts as small as like deleting all letters. <laughs> just being like, you know, like or it's like so ring back tones. Yeah, or... <laughs> it's just like such a crazy time to think back. But it really wasn't that long ago. But I mean, I do I do remember the time. And it's so crazy that you guys were, were so ahead of it. And did you... Or maybe you didn't, but did you find it difficult going and, and trying to raise money in those six years you were ahead of the curve? Were people like, hey, we have no idea what you're talking about. Get out of the office. Or were they like, hey, come back in a couple of years? Or how did how did the fundraising process look for you guys? Yeah, the fundraising was tremendously difficult. I mean, we um, we ended up having to pitch to over 100 venture capital firms um, before we were able to find anyone who was going to step up and actually make an investment. Um, and um, the primary reason that it was so difficult was that we we embarked on our fundraising process. So there was two stages: is the seed fundraising from mm -hmm. angel investors, um, and then of course that was about a million dollars for us. But then there's the venture round, um, and for us that was about seven and a half million for Series A. Um, but it turns out that when we when we raised our Series A, it was exactly just after the whole dot com bubble popped. So um, you can you can imagine all the stock markets had collapsed. All internet companies, in particular, were worth um, one one hundredth of what they were worth uh, in just months before. Um, and uh, and so the venture capitalists uh, were very reticent to make investments at all, and particularly in uh, in consumer technology, which is they viewed and even today would be considered the highest risk. Mm -hmm. um, compared to B2B uh, in terms of the consumer adoption and so on. So, um, so yeah, it was just, uh, they, they would just tell us openly in meetings, that, look, we're just fighting fires, trying to, uh, trying to save our portfolio of investments. Um, and we're not really making new investments. Or if we are, we're not making anything B2C. Um, and it, it, it was tremendously difficult to, to raise the funds. Um, but we, we, we simply, it was just pure, from pure perseverance that um, we just kept trying until we finally found someone who was willing to take a to, chance. To, yeah. So did they buy into the whole concept that we're going to get enough people on here where we're charging them these fees if we get the songs right, that it's going to be a sizable amount for you? Like, did you have that growth? Because uh, you mentioned you were struggling for six years. So I'm wondering, like, was there at least a path of growth that they could see? and buy into yeah. or did you just sell them on the vision no no they they bought into they bought into i mean at that time our revenue model was as, as you mentioned pay-per-use but i mean that that is uh 
you know, if that had worked out, it, Shazam would have made an enormous amount of money okay. uh, because if you take the number of people all paying 50 cents per Shazam tag or whatever, um, it would be, you know, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue um, when you add up all the users around the world and stuff using Shazam. Um, so they, I think they bought into the potential for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and with regards to growth, I mean, when, when we raised our venture round, we had no usage because we didn't even, we hadn't even launched our service. We, we, I know things have changed a lot now. People can actually get a long way without having raised venture money uh, because the, there's so many tools and cloud services and so on available to just build a business for very little. So now VCs expect you to show uh, user traction um, mm-hmm. before they put their money in. Back then, that was not the case. I mean, we needed $7 million just to launch our service, just to build, build out the incredible infrastructure from scratch. Um, to launch our service. So, so they, they're literally giving us seven and a half million dollars and we don't even have a product. All we have is a, a PowerPoint, an algorithm and a patent. Wow. And you keep saying we, so I want to touch on, you didn't do this alone. You had four co-founders? Yeah. Four. Three, four of us total. Four and, total. Yeah. Can you yeah. describe the importance? Because, you know, we talked to a lot of founders and I would say most of 99% of them have at least one co-founder. Could you speak to the importance of having the right co-founders and the importance of having that right founding team, especially when you're up against, you know, what could be six years of, you know, a tough road? Yeah. Gosh. I mean, I, I just, I think I just, <clears throat> I was not a, an experienced entrepreneur when I got started, but I, I just went with my instinct on things. And my instinct told me that it's pretty important who you select as your co-founders. Um, and, um, so I, I immediately kind of started from a place of, you know, focusing on integrity as being number one, because I, I knew we'd go through a lot of tough times and have to stick it through um, all kinds of decisions, some of which we would be, you know, on in having conflicting views on. Um, and so integrity was number one. Um, I think number two was, you know, superstars, you know, somewhat, people that just in some way were amazing. Um, uh, but uh, a third thing was also co- what I call complementary skills. Um, so not trying to find people that have similar um, mm-hmm. sort of skill sets to yourself, but are complementary. Um, and then, um, but one that I did not uh, focus on was any kind of specific background. Um, so, uh, you know, it's not, we were starting a music company on mobile, but we didn't have anyone with music or mobile background. <laughs> uh, and, uh, I mean, now, obviously, the fourth co-founder, the genius technologist that invented the technology, he did have a PhD specialized in audio signal processing. So that helps. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so he definitely had uh, an expertise that was core um, to the business. But um, yeah, so there, were, so there were basically it was D. Raj, who was my good friend um, and amazing guy and uh, and creative and and sort of. Um, I always almost think of him as the little Buddha. Uh, he sort of had this like just this calm sort of uh, wise perspective on life, and I, I thought he would keep us grounded through tough times. Um, Philippe uh, also amazing. He was in my business school class. Um, he had been a trader before business school, uh, and um, but I had done a lot of class projects with him, and and I was amazed at his uh, focus and perseverance. Um, just out of this world, I always like to say he had the productivity of ten superhumans, um, and uh, and uh, he does. And he's and so yeah, he, he, whatever it was we need to tackle, he would just tackle it. Um, so there we were. The, so we were the, the three of us were the, were the founder co-founders to begin with, and then we embarked on the search for the needle in a haystack, which was this uh, genius technologist that would invent this technology that everyone said was impossible. And you found somebody. And how did you find, what was the... <laughs> How did you find the needle? <laughs> yeah. We just put a posting on Craigslist, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, you know um, so uh, we, we kind of went through the research, you know. It's amazing how you can, you know, know nothing and kind of build your knowledge up through, just through kind of logic, first principles, whatever you want to call it. But, um, but basically, you know, Google searches... Uh, and none of us were technical. Diraj, Philippe, and I were none of us were, had technical backgrounds. So, um, a bunch of Google searches um, kind of uh, revealed that uh, the types of people that we felt like would have the educational expertise to tackle this particular problem of music recognition in a noisy environment 
um, were people that had PhDs in audio signal processing. So it's basically electrical engineering, but within electrical engineering, there's signal processing and, and digital signal processing. And within that, there's some people who focus on audio. Um, and then um, there's some people within audio, you know, that clearly includes voice recognition as well. Um, but within audio signal processing, there were some people who had a particular area of interest in music. So, you know, they would do things like, in fact, we found a guy who was a professor at Stanford and he had invented the algorithms that were used in all Yamaha synthesizers, you know, so he was sort of famous in this area, like algorithms to create digital music. Um, and um, so that's what we identified as, okay, so we need someone who's a PhD and in electrical engineering with a focus on digital signal processing, specialized in audio signal processing with a strong emphasis and passion for music. Um, and then that led us to conclude that there's sort of two programs where a lot of those kind of people came out of, and there's probably more, there would be more, but the, the two that we identified were uh, MIT Media Lab and Stanford had a group called the Center for Computer Research in Music and Acoustics. Um, and, uh, and then we started to go into those groups and um, just sort of reached out to various people, just cold called them basically. Uh, and, um, and, uh, and actually we would meet with them, we'd tell them our idea and they'd all say, well, there's no technology that can do that. And I have no idea how to do it. You know, this, this, this just didn't exist. Um, so it's not like building something. Like if you were an entrepreneur saying, I'm going to build a website that sells, you know, shoes, or you would just go hire some, and you, maybe you want it to be a really fancy website that, that you know, and it sort of takes a picture of your shoe and tells you the right size or whatever. Um, but I mean, even then you're typically just building your, I mean, I don't want to understate it. It's still a lot of work, but you're building a technology from the ground up. Um, and, um, and for most businesses, you know, whether it's Facebook or Snapchat, you're just building, taking known things and building them. Um, in the case of Shazam, it's more comparable to saying, you know, we're going to invent a drug that cures cancer. I mean, in the sense it didn't exist and, uh, and, and there was no clear path to whether, we would be able to invent it. So um, that's like the whole, I think it's Reed Hoffman who says entrepreneurship is like jumping off a cliff and then assembling the plane on the way down. It sounds oh, like you guys that. were very much so doing that. Yeah. So yeah. Um, you find the right person, you, uh, is, and that's Avery, is that right? Avery was the fourth, yeah, the fourth co-founder, yeah. So you have the team, you're sticking it through these six years, and at what point did you feel like the traction was really starting to take off? Like, at what point did you maybe breathe a little bit easier and knowing uh, that this was going to work? Well, there's kind of a, a couple different stages. There's, there's knowing it's going to work from a technical standpoint, was something that, you know, I mean, I felt confident it was going to work the whole time. Um, but you know, it's proven once we launched commercially um, with our first seven and a half million and we launched a service and, and it, we did everything we said and, and more. Um, uh, you know, when I say what we said, what we told the VCs that were backing us, we, uh, we secured all four major mobile operators we need, who we needed as partners for our first market in the UK. Um, and, um, that, and then we, uh, integrated with them to enable the short code and the text message return path and the voice. We built an IVR, interactive voice response system that would answer the calls. Um, we built a, a cluster search engine, um, which is a Beowulf cluster of parallel processing PCs. It's kind of similar to what, if you've ever seen old pictures of Google in the early days, it's how they built Google. It's, it's, it's literally just one giant stack and rack of multiple PCs uh, and we built that from scratch and architected it from scratch so that we'd had, had our own search engine um, so that every time someone I made an identi identified a song it would search across all those PCs in the in the RAM of all those PCs we stored fingerprints of all the music um, and we would search across all the music um, in fractions in a fraction of a second um, so we did all that um, and um, and uh, and then we built the music database as well uh, from scratch. We had to have a whole database of all music. Uh, and and uh, so that's a whole story in itself. But we built that from scratch. Um, and um, and so we so we from that perspective, we, you know, we, we I guess you'd say we had confidence that we'd achieve what we need to achieve upon launch in the summer of 2002. Um, but uh, then once it was out there, we're like, OK, this is it. Now it's just going to take off like wildfire. Um, and, and, and look, when we show this to people, they would go, wow, that's incredible. I would use that all the time. You know, what an amazing thing. It was like magic. Even back then, just with a text message, it was still magic. People couldn't believe you could hold a phone up and it would just identify a song. 
Um, but getting users is it can never it can never be under uh, you know o- under overstated how difficult that can be. Um, and um, and so we did just didn't get enough users. And so I would say that the second part of the answer to your question is that the point at which we knew we we're going to become a successful service in terms of user adoption was not until the six years later when the App Store launched in 2008. Speaking of the App Store <laughs> and speaking of Apple, so walk us through, so you're successful, you've got the users now. Walk us through what it looked like you know, for that acquisition? And were you hesitant at all to kind of not give up, but kind of relinquish those reins? Or were you looking at other options when Apple came on the scene? Kind of walk us through what that looked like. Or, or yeah, and just adding to Emily's uh, note, maybe from App Store launch to acquisition, yeah. kind of like what that looks like. Yeah, well, Okay, so App Store launch was 2008, and the acquisition was 2018. Okay. So 10 more years. Yeah. <laughs> After the six years of barely surviving, we had another 10 years of- To go. Wow. Yeah, it, it was, it's a long road. That's why perseverance is such a key, key word uh, for entrepreneurs, I think. Um, but uh, yeah, during that period, um, so we, we very quickly after we launched our successful- App on the App Store, we were we were one of the top most popular apps like out the gate, um, and you know our app was was one of the apps that was included in the very first launch of the App Store, um, and um, we were Apple loved our service. It was it was a, one of multiple things that they felt like show, showcased their platform and the iPhone and the yeah. iPhone app so well, so much so that they actually made their own television advertisement that was just about Shazam. Wow. Um, that's so some, cool. Some free yeah. press, not free, I guess. But. <laughs> yeah, and ran this ad on like you know mainstream TV across the United States, and um, yeah, just showing off Shazam and as a reason to uh, to get get an iPhone. iPhone. Um, yeah, so that was wonderful uh, for us. Um, uh, but you know, during those ten years, I think we then it, we went through all the, the challenges that, that a high growth company goes through. So we, you know, we had to think from a technology standpoint, how are we going to scale this thing? Cause suddenly we're getting so much usage. Um, and, uh, so we hired, um, this, uh, amazing CTO, Jason Titus. He had been previously in charge of all Yahoo email. Um, uh, and now he's over at Google. Um, but you know, he helped build incredible scalability into, into Shazam. Um, kind of core infrastructure and technology uh, so that we could just have an incredible throughput of users identifying songs um, and and also ingesting huge amount of music into our database and so on. Um, and, uh, and then we also, uh, so we had to accommodate growth. We had to just constantly um, improve the service so that it would really be up to the grade of service that we wanted. So adding a lot of music, you know, making the app more responsive and faster, um, algorithm changes that would make it more robust and more accurate and require less time. Um, so basically you're making the whole experience faster, 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 more accurate. Um, and all that is for the user that looks very simple. You just push the button and identifies the song, but behind the scenes, it was a lot of heavy lifting and a lot of research and development that would take years. Um, and so we're constantly, uh, iterating and improving, um, the, uh, the core service. And then the, the, the final thing that we were doing is kind of thinking about, okay, what else are we, you know, what are we going to build a business around? Um, and, um, so, you know, that was a combination of adding features, um, into the service, um, and also kind of layering in revenue streams, you know, so advertising, um, well, yeah, first off, as I mentioned, it was a pay per use service, um, and then later we were licensing our technology in, to certain customers, but, but with the advent of the App Store, I think we focused a, a lot more on advertising as a as a business model. Um, and also, by the way, iTunes uh, affiliate. We were we were selling a lot of music, download music. Uh, people were buying over three hundred million dollars a year of music through Shazam, um, wow. mostly mostly on iTunes. Um, and I think we were the number one affiliate for iTunes. So. Um, but yeah, so advertising became a big area of focus. So really kind of building in a sophisticated advertising experience around Shazam. Um, and then even embarking on some innovative ideas of making 
advertisements Shazamable. So we partnered with advertisers to make a television ad or a radio ad Shazamable. So you could Shazam the ad and then get experience, get get a user experience that's rich on your phone related to that product if you're interested in it. Um, and um, uh, and 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 those are the kinds of things that we are doing. We're also experimenting with you know big bets in terms of the user experience around trying to trying and failing to make Shazam into like a social like experience, um, and uh, you know where you can see what your friends are Shazamming and even see and kind of like see what famous artists are Shazamming. We built all this stuff, um, and um, uh, and then also integration with the 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 rising tide of streaming music. So integrating so that you songs that you shazammed end up on your Spotify playlist and your Apple Music playlist and so on. Um, so yeah, that that was the that's what we kept busy with for those ten years. And sorry to jump in real quick before we get to the acquisition. I'm curious, what was it like navigating that as a non technical founder? Because it seems like a lot of tech heavy decisions that need to be made. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, so, and by the way, I, you know, I should kind of tell you about the timeline. So as I mentioned, Shazam had 18 years from when we started it to when Apple bought it. Um, I, I left, I left the company, um, uh, after four years, um, and then stayed on the board. So my main role, um, after from the four years onwards was to be a board member, a passionate board member. Um, and, um, but I, I joined Google, and Dropbox. And so, um, so I definitely was CEO of the company dur during a period where we were building very tech technical things to answer right. your question, like the cluster search engine, the music database ingestion engine, um, the, uh, the whole user experience of the IVR and SMS and so on. Um, uh, but, uh, but you know, a lot of the other things I mentioned, I was a board member rather than a CEO. Right. Um, uh, but yeah, no, I'd say, you know, it, it's what, you know, when you lean on to answer your question, you know, you're, when you're a CEO of a company that's and you're non-technical, but it's you have a technical product. I mean, there's many examples of that, obviously. Um, and um, I think you just uh, I mean, that's where I guess you could say that my passion for technology and my, maybe some of my computer science classes paid off. But honestly, it's, it's more relying on just hiring great technologists that really understand how to do things. Um, and that's that, and that's what I, we did. Yeah, that makes sense. So then when it came time for the acquisition, you were still on the board and did they yes. consult you on that decision or how did that all shake out? Yeah. Oh yeah. The whole board was, uh, the key, really the key decision making body for the acquisition. Um, we embarked on a professionally led acquisition, you know, where we, we engaged, we evaluated a few different investment banks, um, that would represent us. We selected Goldman Sachs. Um, and then, um, and then Goldman Sachs, their top sort of internet, uh, analyst, uh, banker, um, uh, kind of took us out on the M and a, uh, roadshow, shall we say, um, and, uh, and, or, and, uh, we embarked in multiple conversations with all the big companies you can think of, uh, that would be logical potential acquirers of Shazam, uh, and then went into due diligence with several of those companies. Um, and, um, and then, uh, eventually you, you find a buyer and, um, and for us that, that buyer was Apple. And a great buyer at that. <laughs> Seems like a seamless fit if you're already referring people right. to iTunes and they thought you embodied so much of the, the, I don't know, the characteristics of Apple the from iPhone, the get-go, yeah. doing things in a novel way and repurposing technology. Mm -hmm. um, so it seems like, yeah, a great fit. Yeah, I mean, Shazam, um, one of the things that it had going for it is that it, if you looked at the ratings of the app, they were just out of this world great. Um, and uh, so people just loved the brand and the simplicity of the experience. Um, and it was such a delightful thing. And so you, you would reflect it in, in the ratings. And so I think that kind of alignment of brand and, and beautiful user experience and so on, which, which by the way, took some time to improve to get to that. Um, but that definitely aligned with Apple. Um, the second thing is that uh, we had had a close relationship with Apple for many years. I mean, we had done many things with them. We were, as I mentioned, one of the first apps in their app store. Um, we powered music recognition for Siri as a commercial partnership um, well before they acquired us. Uh, we uh, were their number one iTunes affiliate, driving all those iTunes downloads. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and we were often showcasing their new platform releases of different iOS. So when, when, when a new iOS would be coming out, they would work with certain developers to kind of showcase some of the new features. And we were one of those. Um, so we had a very close relationship with them. And then finally, really most importantly, is that, you know, Apple, Apple really was the dominant company in digital music I mean, in the time of iTunes, right? iTunes was like 90% of all digital music downloads. Um, and, uh, but then with the advent of streaming, Spotify took the lead. Uh, and Apple for the first time in the era of digital music was not the leader um, in the world of streaming music. Um, and, um, and it turned out Shazam has a, is very complementary to a streaming music experience because you know, you're, you, with streaming music, you're already paying. So every song you find is already is free because you're already a subscriber. Right. Um, and so now, and so discovery becomes actually a much more important thing. And that's why Spotify has invested so heavily in discovery, helping people find the music they want to, to listen to. Um, and Shazam is a, a very important tool for discovery because you're, you're essentially able to discover the whole mu all the music you experience in your daily life everywhere mm -hmm. you go. Um, and so, um, so yeah, so that that seemed like a great fit with a streaming service, um, and thus you know a great fit with Apple Music. So speaking of discovering music, <laughs> we were just curious to know what's your favorite song that you discovered <laughs> because of Shazam. Is there any? Actually, are you even a user of Shazam? Let's back it up. Oh, oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I'm definitely a user. I actually have um, a playlist uh, that I uh, that I use specifically for when I'm Shazamming. It's not it's not every song I Shazam. It's after I Shazam a song. If I think, oh wow, this is the one I really like, I want to kind of I'll add it to this special playlist. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, and and so it's a, a collection of songs that I have shazammed and, and that I really like. Um, um, I think that playlist is called Cool New Songs. I'm going to go look that up. <laughs> uh, yeah. Cool New Songs. That's going to be yeah, yeah. My, my next playlist for when I go for a run or something. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, but so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, one band that, um, my gosh, I mean, there's one band that I just, that I love uh, so much. It's called Elbow. Okay. Oh. Uh, it's, it's, they're not that famous. They're kind of in the kind of, uh, they're in the world. Michael's typing area. it down. They're kind of like, yeah, they're kind of, I would say kind of like Radiohead and Coldplay and that kind of stuff. Oh, nice. Oh, nice. But they're really, yeah, they're an excellent band. I highly recommend them. And you would um, have never known if it not for Shazam? Shazam? Uh, yeah, I mean, basically, yeah, because, well, you know, it's, they're not, because they're not so famous. They're not as well known. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, you've helped a lot of people discover music they wouldn't have. And so we will just collectively thank you for that. And yeah. I also, I know that you've been doing a lot of other things and you're not limited to just Shazam. So I want to move us into Guard and tell us a little bit about what Guard is, because to be honest, the website <laughs> does not have a lot of information on there right now. So we are going to rely on you <laughs> to tell us <laughs> what is Guard. Yeah. So there's not a lot of information. There's really share. not. Yeah. Uh, it's really just a big image on the website, but um, <laughs> yes. uh, guard.vision is the website. Uh, but um, so guard is, it's, more, it's a passion project. Um, it's, my goal is for it to be an impact driven business. Mm -hmm. So it's specifically not targeting a huge market with a huge revenue opportunity. I'm not trying to build a billion dollar company. This um, I'm specifically going after something that's actually too, it's really too small to be of interest to, either large tech companies and too small, frankly, to be of interest even to uh, startups who want to have a nice outcome financially because part of having a nice outcome is to make a lot of money. So this is not trying to do any of those things. Um, I want to build a viable business, um, and um, but that solves, saves lives. Um, and um, and I, I, that's the vision for Guard. It's, I'm going to try to prevent drowning in swimming pools using computer vision. Um, so you can think of it as... I like to compare it a little bit to a, a smoke alarm in the sense that, um, you know, the smoke alarm, we don't, we don't think about it every day when we walk into our house, mm -hmm. uh, our apartment, and, uh, but it's there and it's protecting us. And one day if a, a fire starts, uh, which has happened to me, actually, um, the uh, alarm goes off and you have a chance to save your life. Um, and uh, so similarly, I would like the guard to be a device that does that for drowning. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, obviously, the saving part, of, saving the life part, requires another person to save 
um, save the drowning victim. But right. it turns out in most drowning, most drownings, there is someone that's nearby. They just don't, they're unaware. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's garden. It's, and, and it's, uh, the other aspect in addition to it being an impact driven business is that, uh, I, I wanted it to be, you know, disruptive technology and or you know, highly cutting edge technology. And so clearly computer vision, artificial intelligence um, is falls in that area. Um, so so that's garden. And what was the impetus for starting that or how did that become a, a yeah. problem that you wanted to focus on? Fortunately, I don't know anyone who drowned, um, although it's amazing when I tell the story of doing this, how many people will say, mm-hmm. yeah. Like, oh, I, my cousin's sister's daughter, you know, or just it's incredible how often you hear about it. Um, and by the way, you know, drowning is the number one accidental cause of death in the United States for children under the age of five. That's so what I was that, say. Um, it's always children. Yeah. Yeah, yeah children. So, like, uh, that's the CDC data. I mean, for children under five, drowning um, uh, kills more children than poisonings, gunshots, and car wow. accidents. Wow. Um, so, it is a significant. Um, problem that I feel like we can contribute, you know, I'd love to be able to contribute to resolving um, or reducing these incidents. So, I mean, I, I, as I mentioned, I wanted to do something impact driven that saved lives. So for a while I was noodling on healthcare related things, but realized that just I didn't have the right background to pursue those. Um, so it, it met, it met that uh, criteria. Um, I, my son, uh, at his mom's house had a little pool. And so I, I recognized the danger of, for a toddler of a pool. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like a pool looks really beautiful, but when you look at it, you should try to picture a bottomless fire pit um, because that's basically what it is to someone who doesn't know how to swim. Right. Um, cool. And um, and so um, I also recognized how easy it would be to, to you know, just walk away for a few minutes and not have your eyes on, on, on someone that could be a victim. Um, and... Um, yeah, so I think that was a contributing uh, factor to coming up with this concept. I mean, again, like almost everything in the startup world, there's other companies doing it. So I'm not the only company, um, but uh, I'm a big believer for all founders that you know it's very rare that the idea is completely novel. Um, you know, Amazon was the 16th bookstore on the web. Um, so it's like what 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 is what's novel is is doing an excellent job. And by the way, there were seven companies doing music recognition before Shazam, as I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were all doing the radio recognition. So often it's like being in those first companies, but but doing it really really well. Um, and uh, and so that's what I like. I, I think is ultimately an entrepreneur's um, most important focus is is to just be build excellent an excellent business and product. Yeah, it's all the execution. They say it's like the ideas. Yeah, know. and I, I love what you're doing, and I think obviously any product who that's main goal is to save lives is incredible. And you mentioned growing up in San Diego. I actually grew up in Florida, so other side. But a lot of pools, a lot of water, definitely, yeah. you know, I don't know, a big threat over there as well. So I, I think that's really neat. So we'll have to – we'll keep an eye on that website. We'll keep an eye on guard. Yeah, is <laughs> is there a product? I mean, I'm imagining it's like what you said where it's a smoke detector or, or like of sorts where you put something in your pool that recognizes the motion and then sounds an alarm if there's – yeah, it's gonna be a it's gonna be a piece of hardware that's becomes an integral part of your pool, um, and uh, but it's it's gonna take years. I mean, the, the, one of the things that I mean, because of the fact that this is not a highly lucrative business, it means you can't raise a lot of money, and and you can only really race to build products when you have a whole bunch of money. So uh, I, that's not the case for Guard. But second, secondarily. Um, as an entrepreneur, having created Shazam, I have so much respect for burn rate, um, and so I'm purposely kind of tackling things one risk at a time. And so uh, there's no super rush, other than that I would I would love to launch a product, um, but um, but I'm trying to be very capital efficient and uh, and sort of I figure things out with very little capital, mm-hmm. um, so that I can make mistakes and I've already made mistakes and having to pivot directions and technical approach already. Um, but be, be able to do that without, uh, having, uh, uh, traumatic outcomes. Um, and, right. and that's what I think is the scariest thing for, for entrepreneurs. Yeah. So going back to what Emily said, how you wear many hats as an entrepreneur, and it seems like you have a lot of different interests. I also want to touch briefly on you being a motivational speaker, and tell us a little bit about that and 
um, kind of what you focus on when you're talking to your audience? Basically, we would like to get motivated in these <laughs> yeah. next ten minutes. Give us a teaser. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I should I should correct it. So it's not actually it's not actually motivational speaker. I don't want to disappoint you, but it's actually I'm an innovation speaker. Okay, um, even better. Turns out, there's so many. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's so many different focus areas that you have for speakers, um, and and they you know, typically come from whatever their experiences are. But yeah, my focus is um, as on innovation. Um, and um, uh, yeah, so I, I sort of fell into this. Um, I was approached by a speaking agency and it turns out that there's demand for professional speakers in different areas, innovation being one of them. Um, and, uh, and, and it comes typically from corporations that are having events uh, and so I've spoken at uh, different company events, like an American Express event, an SAP event, uh, uh, you know, Verizon event, and, and so on and so on. Um, I was even on a Tony Robbins event, actually, just recently, oh, cool. um, which was pretty cool. For his nice. birthday? <laughs> no, it wasn't his birthday, okay. but it was Business Mastery. That uh, was the name of the event. It was for many business leaders. Um, yeah. He was a really great guy, uh, but um, so yeah, so uh, so I really enjoy that because it's a, it's an opportunity to get up and talk a little bit about uh, my learnings about innovation from Shazam and um, and also from spending twelve years at Google and Dropbox and uh, just working around a lot of really smart innovators um, and uh, how those can be uh, how those can be uh, adopted by co- companies all over the world. Uh, to to kind of keep their businesses moving forward and uh, and avoid being left behind. Yeah, um, what a great way to like harness your experience too into actionable items that other people can take. I know you speak about creative persistence, and you just in this past podcast we're talking now have mentioned the word perseverance a lot. Yeah. So tell us what is creative persistence. Yeah, creative persistence is is a term I coined, and um, I, I kind of thought, well, what what is the word to describe kind of what I did and, and what I've done many times, um, and uh, so essentially, all entrepreneurs have to be persistent, um, and all entrepreneurs have to be creative. Um, but I think what's really interesting is is when you're not just persistent and not just inventing ideas and not just being persistent, but, but when you, when you hit an obstacle, it's, 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 it's being really innovative and and thinking outside the box of how you're going to overcome that obstacle. Um, and, uh, gosh, I mean, as an example, um, with Shazam, you know, when we wanted to build a large music database, we're like, Oh, well, we don't have the music. What what are we going to do? Uh, and so we're, we sort of think we're thinking outside the box and, we didn't want to buy a hundred thousand CDs. That was going to cost a lot of money. Um, and uh, and then we thought, oh, we'll we'll go to the companies that have the CDs, distributors of CDs, and we'll help them create a database of their own catalog, their own CD catalog. Because this is a long time ago. This is before uh, there was digitized music databases. Um, and so that's what we did. It was a very unique proposition, but we partnered uh, with a distributor of CDs in order to create the Shazam Music Database. And that was a way for us to build a database without having to buy 100,000 CDs. Mm-hmm. That, that was one example of creative persistence. Um, but there were, so, there were so many along the way. Because so, when, you, when you build a startup, you've got the original idea of you know, what's, what's the kind of product or what's the revolutionary thing I'm going to do. But I feel like there's so many other kind of breakthrough things you have to come up with along the way. Um, so like for Spotify, it wasn't just streaming music, but it was like, how are we going to, let's do it with a, a free experience up front. Um, and that required uh, a lot of uh, heavy lifting to make that a reality. Yeah. Um, um, so, and so, the, and there's so many examples out there. Um, with Dropbox, you know, they built a great sync product <laughs> and then they, had, they also had a trouble getting users um, and um, ad- AdWords were not working. Um, and uh, then they came up with the idea of, oh, let's give free space to people if we refer someone, you know. Uh, yeah, so so there's, there's just many, many of these sort of little innovations that kind of where they're really solutions to problems where, um, or obstacles um, where you're you're being persistent because you're just so focused on overcoming them because you have to um, but also you're being really creative and thinking outside the box it's not it's often not a, a standard approach of just kind of pounding the the wall um, but actually kind of really kind of uh, uh, thinking in a unique way uh, around a solution 
So it seems like that's such a critical part for founders. So how do you go about learning and growing and like who do you look up to in the space or um, who are some of your role models to keep you, you know, tracking toward that creative persistence? Oh, wow. Um, you know, it's, I actually think that I don't have a specific role model, um, uh, but um, I, I would say that I actually think there's, uh, there's things to be learned from many, many different entrepreneurs. There's make many, many little stories out there of things that were done and that are fascinating. Um, uh, so I, I just, I love to, I actually love to listen to podcasts like this, you know, then just you, you, you kind of get the inside stories on, um, what different companies had, uh, what they had to tackle and how they went about it. Um, and you can learn so much, um, from people that are not necessarily mega famous. I mean, not everyone is Elon, Elon Musk or Steve Jobs, right. um, but there's lots of really innovative things that are behind the scenes that people often don't realize uh, that, that, were, that, are, that are basically uh, methods that entrepreneurs have used to, to realize uh, the outcomes that they've achieved. We yeah. obviously are fans of podcasts as well, yeah. so we'll make sure we put that at the top of your episode. Yeah. <laughs> but before we let you go, we do want to pick your brain on just a couple of things about entrepreneurship and kind of piggybacking off this last question of, obviously, through this innovation speaking, you've built a personal brand for yourself. Can you mm -hmm. speak to how important it is for founders to build a personal brand for themselves? Yeah, I mean, I think that, yeah, I think that... I, I think it's, I think of it as a reputation rather than a brand necessarily mm -hmm. for a founder. Yeah. Um, and, um, and, and the reputation is very important because it's going to be ultimately it's sort of the DNA of what becomes your culture as you grow. Um, and, um, you know, there's the initial people that join a startup or join the startup often because of the founder and their vision and what kind of person they are. Um, and, um, and then that attracts a certain type of people, which becomes the type of people that are recruiting the next recruits. Um, and uh, so actually when I joined Google and um, it was only about 2000 people, that was in 2004, it was just, it was a good, about six months before it went public. Um, and um, it, it, you could really see this. So we, we had this thing when we interviewed people, we called it, um, are they Googly, we would say. Um, and so you'd have all these criteria, you know, that we would rank the interviews by, but, but one of them finally was, are they Googly? And what, what does that mean? Well, it meant that they were really smart, but humble. You know, and um, and not like because they're and not sort of, you know, too pushy and too much boasting about themselves and so on. But they were like incredibly impressive people, um, and they, they they would just and that kind of person would fit in in terms of in a collaborative way with teams that in a way that worked really really well and built a great culture at Google. Um, so I think uh, that all comes from the founders on down. Um, and, uh, and it's, 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 it's comes from reputation, you know, mm -hmm. it comes from, um, you know, what drives them, what motivates them, um, what, you know, what's important to them. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, so, it, so I think that reputation matters a lot and that, and that really comes from the heart. Yeah. Do you think that there are qualities that innately make somebody a fit for entrepreneurship or is it things that evolve over time? Do you think you're born an entrepreneur? I think there's certain types of people that are much more likely to be entrepreneurs mm -hmm. than others. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's people that uh, are, you know, tend to be creative, tend to question things. Um, and uh, tend to um, w be motivated by uh, having impact, you know, and by really, really feel great satisfaction from kind of creating something that other people, you know, kind of just from creating something really. Mm -hmm. um, and um, uh, and then um, I think it's often people that are that are their talent is not sufficiently recognized. Um, when they're part of a company. Um, and so they, uh, like they're, they're sort of hit a glass, almost like a glass ceiling. Um, so, you know, maybe they're not like, maybe they're, uh, I mean, in my case, I, I'm, a, I think I'm a bit dyslexic, you know, and my son's dyslexic. So, you know, it, it makes it a little bit harder to read large volumes of mm -hmm. reading material or communicate well. Um, and, um, you know, that, that, that kind of holds you back 
relative relative to what you you relative to where you could be. I think in it's part of a an organization, and so as an entrepreneur, um, that uh, you feel like you have a path to uh, be in charge and 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 uh, and get to where you want to. Yeah. without being part of politics and so on. So, um, yeah, I, I think that those kind of things are often, all the things I just described are, they kind of are probably mostly inherent characteristics of people. Um, and uh, and I, I think some people, you know, are just not as, as much like that and maybe not meant to be an entrepreneur as much. Yeah. I know Michael has a question he wants to ask you. Yeah, I'm curious if you uh, were to start over, but you were let's say 18 or 20 years old today, um, what would you, and you had to build something all over again, um, knowing that Shazam already exists, maybe Guard already exists. So in today's world with today's opportunities, what would be kind of the path that you would want to go down? Oh, wow. That's a hard one. I mean, I I think that um, I'm definitely fascinated by all the, possible things that can be improved through artificial intelligence. It's, it's, it's sort of, uh, the next revolution of computing that is just opening up so many opportunities. Um, and, uh, so I think it would be, it would be some type of, um, delightful experience that's, uh, essentially made possible through artificial intelligence. Um, we just had a delightful experience with AI yesterday. We did, actually. Oh, really? We did. We found this. <laughs> uh, it's called Jasper.ai, and it basically writes content Copy. for you. Mm-hmm. And we oh. were blown away. We were, It's really cool. We just put in a few keywords, like kind of describe what we wanted. And like you said, it was delightful. We were like blown away. Yeah. Wow. So it's basically like a, it writes actual written content. Yeah. Yep. Like if you needed an ad or a blog post or you even can, an email, it email says, you like, can put in how many characters or words you want and it just like plugs away and we, all you do is like click next and we were like, this is amazing. <laughs> <Yeah>. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So like you said, like yeah. the fact that AI can do this where it's not plagiarized, it's, you know, something totally unique and new and it's learning as it goes is absolutely mind-blowing yeah it, it really is and it, and it, and, it, and so there's so many things that that i think have lots of room for improvement um thanks to this rev- revolution so but yeah, does I would ai say, scare you at all <laughs> no I, I i mean not at this point no, no. I, I can i can see that i can see the picture of how one day robots become more power you know get their, a mind of their own and start attacking us but um but I think that's a long way away. But then do we become like less human as the robots become more human? Like part of me wonders. I definitely think there's obviously amazing <laughs> moments and amazing parts where AI can be introduced to really enhance life. But as long as it doesn't go so far the other way that you're outsourcing your life to machines. Right, right. Exactly. Yeah, I think it's just about it's just about improving things that are clunky right now. There's so many things yeah. that are clunky, and and they're and we probably don't view them as clunky because they're just the way things are. But once you like look at this content creation tool you mentioned, I mean, once you get if you know if you start adopting that and using that, and it's really becoming it becomes like a tool, almost like a spell check. If you're let's say you're a journalist and you used a tool like this, it's like it becomes so. After a while, you just it just enhances your ability to create. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Um, and, uh, and so I think, um, so I think once those things become mainstream, you look back at the world before the, uh, the AI assisted, uh, experiences and you kind of say, wow, that was so clunky. And and there's a lot of things that are clunky. As you know, the majority of our listeners are also entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs. Could you leave them with a piece of advice? Gosh, I would say, you know, I would say to definitely start from your, you know, you need so much fuel as an entrepreneur. And so that, that story I told about the contact lenses not being exciting enough, uh, uh, (laughs) I think that, you know, to make sure that you're really passionate about whatever it is that you embark on, um, because you're going to need that incredible passion to be able to stick with it and do an amazing job at it. Um, and, uh, and so if you feel like you're building something just because 
you know, someone told you it's a good idea or you think it's a good idea, but you don't really feel it. Mm -hmm. um, you don't feel the obsession. You don't find that you're just thinking about it every time you go for a run, um, just without even trying to, you're just thinking about it. Um, then that, that might mean that you're not sufficiently passionate about it. And if that's the case, um, it's just a matter of time before it's, 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 it's not going to achieve, uh, the, the level that it needs to, in terms of, uh, a quality that, mm -hmm. that would come from such incredible passion. Well, we, anything else? I guess we typically close out by asking, um, if you could describe your journey in one word. Just one. We used to allow hyphenated, but today I'm not. I'm feeling really strict. So one word, no hyphens. I'm going to say obsessed. Ooh. We've never had that before. That's a good one. All right. Well, thank you so much. Is there anything else you want to leave our listeners with? Anything else about Shazam, Guard? You. You. Anything that we missed? before we let you go? No, I think just, you know, just that I think that for all the entrepreneurs out there, I think it's just, it's such a rewarding experience to, to build something um, and uh, to build a business. And uh, so I'm, I'm so excited that, that people are, are, you know, being entrepreneurial and doing that. I think it's a, a great way to realize uh, an amazing life experience and career. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining yeah. us today. We really appreciate your time. It has been a true pleasure. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Sliced Podcast. If you're interested in sponsoring an episode of Sliced, please email newsroom at startupblogpost.com and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook.